Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. This is serious business here, man. We've got a mission. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. It's New Year's Eve, folks, and uh, we can't think of a better way to spend New Year's Eve than with Billy F. Gibbons of ZZ Top. It'll be your aperitif, your appetizer. You can you can have New Year's Eve with us and with Billy Gibbons. He's going to surprise you. He's not what you think he is. I think he's, he's one of the smartest guitarists in rock and roll, and uh, Billy is a great storyteller. And then, you know, go out and party later on. Absolutely. Bring in the new year. We're also going to have uh, listeners from Sound Opinions giving their 2005 best albums of the year. We had our turn a couple of weeks ago. Now it's the listeners' turn tonight. And I'm going to have a Desert Island jukebox later on in the show. Heck of a show. But first, we have uh, a Sound Opinions soon-to-be annual tradition. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Live from the Sterling Studios of Chicago Public Radio, the undisputed home of rock and roll, it's the year-end awards show the music industry doesn't want you to hear. Please welcome your hosts, Jim and Greg, for this inaugural edition of The Soupies. All right, you have heard of the Grammys, you have heard of the uh, Emmys, you have heard of the Oscars. Uh, We have the Soupies, the Sound Opinions S.O. OP award for dubious achievements in rock music this And some year. not so dubious. These are awards we felt strongly about one way or another. Some positive, some negative. You'll well, get we're, the drift. We're giving them out, so they're probably dubious just because we're <laughs> awarding them. I've heard many, many people tell me that I absolutely must see them live. They prove that in this day and age, you can still be original and be fantastic and be revered. So let's bring out the Arcade Fire! The first one we're going to hand out tonight is the Hell Freezes Over Award, and that goes to the Chicago Park District, longtime enemy of rock and roll in the city of Chicago. This year, staging shut all live music out of Grand Park Indeed. for years. And this summer, suddenly two national, worldwide festivals in the parks of Chicago, Lollapalooza and the Intonation Festival, major festivals in city parks this summer. Lollapalooza, no longer your grandfather's Lollapalooza. In fact, barely 
bearing much resemblance to the original Perry Farrell incarnation. Perry Farrell seems to be the only connection with the old Lollapalooza and the new one, the uh, traveling alternative rock festival of the early 90s sort of revolutionized the idea of touring and what a, what a festival could be. Normally festivals are one site location. Perry Farrell took this band of alternative rock bands around the country in the early 90s and really set the stage for the rise of bands like Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins later on in the decade. Lollapalooza came back this year after uh, having some economic difficulties the last couple of years and staged a big comeback at Grand Park, attracting a lot of similarly styled alternative rock bands. But it's the new face of corporate rock, alternative rock. Very much a guitar-centric. Not a lot of cutting-edge music. For the cutting edge, you had to go to Union Park uh, over on the city's west side. A great festival called the Intonation Festival was sponsored by the people behind the very influential indie rock webzine Pitchfork. Yes, and the bookings there, much more adventurous, very much on the underground tip. And at the same time, drawing 15,000 people a day, a total of 30,000 people from around the world to Union Park, a little slice of land on the west side of Chicago. Both festivals are going to be back in an even bigger way, I'm told, next summer. And both were national stories. This was only not only a national story, Greg. This was uh, not only a worldwide story. This is a universal story. I'm not a cheap date. Uh, I'm in the checks business. You know, and not just people signing the checks, but people cashing them. And I'm ready to spend my, whatever you want to call it, the currency of my celebrity, uh, if that's what it takes to get there. The pompous blowhard of the year award goes to the frontman of U2 that would be of course Bono there was a pope elected this year doesn't matter nothing compared to Bono a presidential election couple years no, no. Bono is the man at least if you buy the media I don't understand remember when U2 was actually a uh, ironic rock band and would make fun of themselves and make fun of the concept of self-importance and uh you know, Bono had this character, the fly, and he played himself as Mephisto, the devil, and, you know, but he has become that. You know, there was serious talk of him being a Nobel Prize contender just because he's Bono. You know, President <laughs> Bush will take his call, and, and, and Mitterrand in France will take his call, and then he goes to them and says, you know, forgive third world debt, and they say, sure, Bono. They get a picture taken with him, and then he leaves, and nobody does anything. Africa's still starving. The debt still exists. You know, get out of my face, well, man. Well, here's the real issue. I I don't have a problem with his philanthropy. I think he has dedicated quite a bit of time to this cause, and it may be pushing the boulder up the mountain. Wait, 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 what philanthropy? Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He made, you know, you two spent a lot made, of time on this stuff. Instead of stuffing his gills with cocaine. You two made $260 million, the top-grossing tour mm -hmm. of 2005. You know, all right, take your quarter of that, divide 260 by four, Bono, you give that to Africa, and then come back and tell me what a swell guy you are, okay? I don't have any problem with Bono dedicating his time to this cause, no matter how futile it might be. If he wants to spend his time in that way, that's fine. I just wish he'd get back to his day job. That happens to be making music with what was once the biggest rock band in the world, maybe still are. However, if they continue to make albums as poor as How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, I'm going to have a trouble paying attention to anything the guy has to say. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got another soupy. I do indeed. It's the Pig's Fly Award. <laughs> It's actually quite emotional. 
standing up here with these three guys after all these years. Standing to be counted for the rest of you. Anyway, we're doing this for everyone who's not here, but particularly, of course, for Sid. Speaking of Bono, his big festival over the summer to raise awareness for a third world debt relief, the Live Aid concerts staged at multiple locations around the world, including London, and the big centerpiece of the show was the uh, reunion of the four key members of Pink Floyd for the first time in two decades, Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Rick Wright, right. on stage together for the first time in over 20 years. A lot of acrimony within this band seemingly melting away for one four-song set at Live 8, rapturously received, despite the fact that MTV DJs <laughs> chose to speak over it <laughs> while they were talking that. about it, but raised the spectacle of a, of a possible uh, Pink Floyd reunion, maybe possibly happening in the next couple of years. I'm not so sure. David Gilmore is actually going out on a solo tour early in the new year. But, hey, they were good. It was a reunion that didn't suck. I mean, I'll take that over the Eagles. I'll take that over... Just about anybody. They seem to actually enjoy being up there with each other. There was smiles exchanged, yeah. and, and Waters said some very touching things from the stage about being up there with those guys. It was a, it was a wonderful moment in rock and roll in 2005. All right, we are doing the Soupies, the Sound Opinions Year-End Music Awards, and uh, one of the most dubious this year is the Customer is Always Wrong Award goes to the recording industry, the major label recording industry. All you heard at the end of the year was about the downturn in record sales in record stores. Uh, album sales were down about 10% from where they were in 2004. That's the second decrease of that number uh, in the last five years, which is pretty extraordinary. However, at the same time, the sales online of albums increased astronomically from 4.7 million at this time last year to more than 14 million albums sold online. That's not downloading. That's people paying for full albums online. More lawsuits announced today by the Recording Industry Association of America against people downloading music. It is as if you go into a car dealership, you <laughs> ask to test drive the car, you're going to come back and say, you know, I, I like that, I'm going to buy it, but they arrest you, the cops are waiting for you there, because <laughs> they called in to say you stole the car. I mean, you know, how, how brilliant is that? It's amazing, Jim. Uh, we're talking about over 19,000 lawsuits in the last couple of years against the consumers, the very people that the music industry is trying to court. The greatest distribution model in the history of mankind is being throttled by well, the music industry. this year the music industry gets the Customer's Always Wrong Award. Next year, uh, I hope it gets the You're Dead Now, Good Riddance, We Dance on Your Grave Award. <laughs> because really, we don't need it, the system as it is now. All right, more awards, more dubious achievements from the Soupies in 2005. And this one's got a plus side to it because it produced a great piece of pop music. It's the He's Got a Big Mouth, But Sometimes He's Right Award. I hate the way they portray us in the media. If you see a black family, it says they're looting. If you see a white family, it says they're looking for food. That's got to go to uh, Kanye West. Kanye West does have a big mouth. There's a lot of people who don't like the guy just on principle because he happens to speak his mind wherever and whenever he is. And the most egregious example of this occurred on September 2nd, a few days after the Katrina disaster in New Orleans, on an NBC live broadcast, as West was watching the images of death and despair and anarchy being broadcast from New Orleans, blurted out, 
George Bush doesn't care about black people. This really rubbed the president of the United States wrong. Did you hear at the press conference last week where he was questioned in the White House, which he hates doing this, hates talking to the press, mm-hmm. but he did one of these rare question and answer sessions. He brought this up. Basically, yep. you know, he didn't it, mention it stung. It Kanye stung. by name, but president of the United States responding to a rapper. You know, was, uh, he was crushed. Uh, the fact of the matter was that there was a late response to the storm. One third of that city is in poverty. The head of FEMA resigned over this over this controversy, Michael Brown. There was some substance to Kanye West's remarks, as well as an incredible amount of emotion. But then also the the most inventive artist in sampling today, one of the best producers in pop music, found himself sampled. Indeed. The Houston rap group The Legendary K.O. took a piece of Kanye's huge hit song, Gold Digger, and refashioned it into a terrific piece of protest music. George Bush don't like black people. George Bush don't like black people. I found it to be one of the most entrancing pieces of pop music released in 2005. Certainly a, uh, an emotional commentary on what was going on in uh, New Orleans around the time of Katrina. Basically a series of vignettes about what the people in uh, New Orleans were going through from first-hand accounts that the guys in this uh, group, the legendary KO, were getting from the refugees who were basically uh, transported to the uh, Houston Astrodome nearby where they lived. Good stuff. So those are the uh, first annual Sound Opinions Soupy Awards. Uh, We cover this stuff so you don't have to, That's Jesus Just Left Chicago. No mistaking that sound, that amazing guitar tone. ZZ Top's Billy F. Gibbons. We know him as the guitar guru, the guy with the long hair, with the bushy beard. But there's a lot more to Billy Gibbons than that, as we learned when he came through town to promote his latest book. Greetings, greetings. We're going to tell you some ground rules right off the bat. We've been hearing (laughs) you do some other interviews. And you have created one of the great rock and roll personas of all time. But okay. Greg and I have also both extensively interviewed you at length for hours at a time over the years. And we happen to know that not only are you one of the most colorful characters in rock and roll, one of the great guitarists, you're a great intellect as well. Well, thanks. thanks. Uh, that, that might not have been heard on, on several other <laughs> interviews you did. Yes, there were, there were moments <laughs> of relapse. Well, that's a good question, though, the, the persona and the person. I mean, uh, obviously, there's a degree of creating a character and creating a, uh, a band in, in that image that has been extremely successful. And is there like a Billy Gibbons hat that you put on for the ZZ Top experience, much like the hat maybe you're wearing today? Funny you should mention. Yeah. <laughs> that is a Love. unique hat. And the, guy, and the hat that you take off when you're, when you're at home and, you know, around your art collection and collecting guitars and things like that. Yeah. This, this particular hat, speaking of hats, mm-hmm. is uh, one near and dear. It's part of this uh, 
ongoing reminder of what ZZ Top has uh, attempted to do over the years, and that's assume a position of interpretation of this great American art form called the blues. Mm -hmm. And someone said, well, how does African art play into a part of ZZ Top or what Billy F. Gibbons does on a day-to-day basis? But these artifacts, these objects, are simple reminders of taking it all the way back to Africa, where yeah. we, we suspect that the retentions of the blues, you know, precede it way, way back. So this is a cap that people can see on the cover of this book and in a lot of publicity photos. It's kind of a skull cap with these weird, almost like miniature corn cobs or Some something. kind of dreadlock frangles <laughs> yeah. or something. So this is an African cap? You got this in Africa? Yeah, from the uh, country of Cameroon. And mm. the Bamaliki uh, tribe, considered one of the really last true royal African tribes, they're, they're known for their, their expertise in textiles, weaving mm. and just beautiful, beautiful stuff. See, that's not the sort of story yeah. that, that people <laughs> – did you jam with the Bamaliki when you were there? Or uh? I had a very interesting exchange with uh, one of the chieftains. I had gone over with some uh, friends that um, from Vienna. They were the Austrian consulate. Mm-hmm. to Cameroon, uh, Minister of Finance, Minister of Arts, and, and uh, the the welcoming chief. We were all lined up in a row, and he passed them by immediately because I was wearing a cowboy hat that I brought from Texas. Uh-huh. He uh, walked up and stared at my head. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I like the hat. Ah, there you and go. I said, well, uh, and they gave me the elbow. Come on, give the chief the hat. And I said, <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I said, chief, I said, uh, where we come from, we do a little horse trading on these kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. things. <laughs> Not partnered with it that easily. Then I got the, you know, it's like, you can't say that to the chief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, no, wait, wait just one second. And someone wanted a couple minutes, somebody was scurrying back with the famous All right. ZZ Hat Day of Freak. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, now, see, Billy, if, if you ever get tired of this rock and roll thing or the new career as an author, you know, they, we, we have serious problems in, in Africa. You could you could go into the diplomatic world. I think so. We'd, uh, we'd probably need a Democratic president <laughs> to do that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although you've got connections in Texas, I'm sure. We uh, wouldn't mind going back to Africa. It's been a while since we, uh, we've actually performed there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it offered me the opportunity to to remain on as a tourist i stayed for half a year down in wow. south africa that was interesting wow that's great took some forays up burkina faso Cote d'ivoire you know we will always be the little old band from texas but not necessarily restricted to just that you're listening to me jim deirgatis and my partner greg cott talking with billy f gibbons of zz top and so much more when we come back he's going to tell us about his vintage blues roots about hanging out listening to jeff beck with Jimi hendrix and the absolute absurdity of the early mtv videos that he and zz top did you know furry guitars furry drum set leggy girls all that and more when we come back on sound opinions on Chicago Public Radio. Rumors spread around in that Texas town about the shack outside the games. And you know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you wanna go to that whole mound on the range. They got a lot of nice girls. I'm not 
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. He's Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. We're uh, back with our conversation with ZZ Top's Billy Gibbons in a second. Later on in the show, we're going to have a Desert Island jukebox. I'm going to pop a quarter in there and let you know what I'm going to take to a Desert Island today. Plus, we've got listener feedback. We had our say a couple of weeks ago on the Albums of the Year 2005. A bunch of people are going to tell us their choices, uh, folks from the Sound Opinions message board and otherwise. Right now, here's more of our chat with Mr. Billy Gibbons. Billy, to follow up on sort of that notion of borrowing and things being passed down and, and sort of opening up the world, how easy was it for you to learn from the blues masters? I mean, these guys are notorious for not necessarily sharing their secrets and, in fact, being threatened by somebody, some new guitar hotshot coming up and saying, you're stealing all my licks, man. You yeah. know, how And was you're it? getting paid where and I never was. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I know it was a cutthroat scene in Texas. Uh, every band wanted to be better than the other band in, you know, in that era, and certainly now, I'm sure. How was it learning from the, from the masters? You had to pay attention. And I think the good news is that we're still learning. Just when you think you've got it all sussed up, you go back and play a Jimmy Reed record or for heaven's sakes, a Robert Johnson from 1936. That's quite quite enough time, it would seem. <laughs> it should have been digested somebody, by now. Somebody yeah. would have gotten it, and I don't know anybody that can can quite get it. At the light above, I'm racing up. Say, poor Bob, if you please. There's an interesting, um, well, it's a dichotomy between trying to learn it and then um, by the time it comes back out, it's, it's a simple interpretation. The quest to reproduce it always uh, seems to bring in one's own personality, mm-hmm. one's, a little bit of one's character. So now that part, it, it doesn't get stale. Yeah. It's always something fresh. Well, mm-hmm. one of the great things I think about your career is that there's a certain, you know, the blues has, has been uh, put into a box in some corners, almost airless. You know, as, as much fun as Scorsese's documentary was, you know, th- never anywhere in those hours of, of public broadcasting uh, TV did it say, like, this stuff will set you free. It's great fun. You're never going to have more of, of a killer kick-ass time in your life than playing this music, whereas you've always done that. You know, people look at ZZ Top, you're having fun. You don't make it seem like an academic exercise when you talk about the heritage of the blues. Yeah, it's a thread that has woven itself into what we attempt to do. It's certainly entertaining, and I think that's one of the elements that uh, has allowed us to stay together as a band for going on, you know, three decades into it now and still enjoying it. You listen to the Moving Sidewalk stuff, and Billy Gimmons, the lead vocalist, 
songwriter, guitar player. In case people don't know, Greg, Moving Sidewalks are, are, are classic garage rock of the psychedelic yeah. era, 66, 67. Uh, 99th Floor was a huge hit. It's included on the original Nuggets album, which spurred every garage revival that has happened since. The way you were able to sort of dramatize the 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 music with ZZ Top, uh, that was an interesting transition. How did it go from moving sidewalks, garage rock, to this very dramatic guitar tone, vocal style? The voice seemed to drop about ten octaves. The blues, it was just dirty, bluesy. When you met Frank Beard and Dusty Hill, who I guess were playing in a rival Dallas band, as I recall. That's correct. The story. American um, Blues. We had the sidewalks in Houston. Yeah. American Blues from Dallas, which was Frank and Dusty. And um, that in itself is is noteworthy. As we discovered one another, um, by the time I got introduced to Frank, um, what he was doing on drums was exactly what I was wanting to hear. And uh, he suggested that we uh, consider this guy Dusty Hill. He did not let on that they had been playing together for two years previously. <laughs> but when we all finally gelled, their rhythm section as a, as a power was automatic. They provided the bed that allowed me to just float on it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, uh, well, Dusty and Frank both had spent time uh, on stage with Freddie King. Dusty played uh, backed up Lightning Hopkins. And that, that, once again, there was that blues thread that kept jumping up. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you are in Hendrix's hotel room, was it, when you were listening to the Jeff Beck record? Oh, yeah. What was that moment like? We had been a fan of, of Jeff Beck, and then when Hendrix hit the scene, we knew that we were going to be drawn into something. I'd just seen a brief two-paragraph mention of uh, the Monterey Pop Festival. And there was uh, there was a reference to this Jimi Hendrix experience, yeah. and uh, it was so curiously fascinating. I chased it down until we discovered there was actual recordings to be had, mm -hmm. and the arrival of that record really flipped us out. H here was here was uh, the guy that was doing things with a guitar that it wasn't invented to to be done with, <laughs> and. Uh, as luck would have it, we were hired to uh, hired on to tour with this Jimi Hendrix experience, and there was another outfit, the Soft Machine, mm -hmm. real avant-gardists. And uh, the first day, we uh, we arrived in a hotel. It was in Dallas, Texas, and it was at the very end of the hall. And I was just adjacent to Hendrix, and there was a tremendous clatter and banging going on. And I opened the door. And two of the uh, house men were loading in a record player. It, back in those days, was the size of a Buick. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, he plugged it up, and immediately um, he was playing Jeff Beck's first solo record, Truth. And uh, he saw me leaning up and kind of taking notice, and he said, come on in here, you into this? And, and for me, 
seeing Jimi Hendrix, you know, studying Jeff Beck. And um, it was just a great combination of what he had already done. And, yeah. and he, too, was still learning. Now, of course, you can listen to anything Jeff Beck does today, and we're all still learning. I was talking to, to Steve Stills, who was hanging around Hendrix in that era, and he said that the one thing that Hendrix brought to the sort of blues vocabulary, because everybody was studying him, was just the, the flair and the showmanship. And obviously you brought an element of that to what you were doing with ZZ Top later on. How much of that stuff was rubbing off on what you ended up doing? Qu- uh, quite a bit. From the one vital element, probably the, the most valuable hint of uh, a revelation came from the casualness. It was not, I don't care, it's just, I'm going to just let this do its thing. And uh, and on a good night is probably when you throw caution to the wind, up there in the heat of the moment, and it allows that mysterious creative magic to flourish. I would argue that you're one of the few guitarists in the world where you hear one note, two notes, it, you go right away, that's Billy Gibbons. It sounds like Billy Gibbons. And there's the, this mystery. How does a guitarist get that distinctive sound? You know, this, you know yeah. Santana's one of those guitarists. You're one of those guitarists. There's maybe a handful of others. In well, especially category. given that there's a picture, you know, 100 pictures of beautiful guitars. Some of them have rust on them for five decades. Some of them are brand spanking new. Yet whatever you f- have in your hands sounds that way. signals to do as you thumb through page after page as you pointed out uh, this wonderful book with hundreds and hundreds of photographs of this stack of lumber we call a collection of guitars it's really it's really pornography it is, <laughs> this is <laughs> pornography uh, for guitar lovers yeah, guitar porn yeah <laughs> uh, we um, not only got to relive the stories that are connected with these instruments but uh, it brought once again this hard hard fact that e- even guitars made at the same assembly line on the same day come out with a, a little difference in character, a little difference in tone. Mm. And uh, the, the book also has some uh, images from the warehouse where stacks and stacks of different amplifiers, uh, different guitars, and um, to be credited with having finally arrived with some recognizable character is uh, quite flattering. But you have no idea what it is. And we can't really put our finger on how that happened. Mm. I recall, as mentioned, uh, uh, from the early days, the um, 
early section of this book showing the history where a lot of this comes from Mm -hmm. uh, up to the present and um, that notion of of personality uh, is no more telling than when the most recent recording Mescalero um, Dusty had had uh, laid down a track and inadvertently he had left out 32 bars toward the last part of the of one of the songs and he since he had left the studio the engineer said well it's just 32 bars why don't you just pick up the bass and and fill mm. in i'm sure mm. he wouldn't mind and one by one the bass went around the room <laughs> while everybody attempted to sound like dust and nobody could do which it which was impossible wow I mean, he's got like fuzz tone in his fingers wow that's oh, amazing that's... How, when did you feel you got did you feel there was a moment where the Gibbons sound sort of emerged on a record, on a song. Uh, did you feel like there was a moment like that for you? It came in stages, mm-hmm. and I got a vivid recollection uh, having picked up the guitar when I turned 13 after badgering the, the folks for a year. Every day went by, got to have an electric guitar, yeah. got to have a guitar, <laughs> got to have a guitar. And uh, I think there was, it, it was six frustrating months of every day just struggling to get this this shape of this chord or this note and then one day there was a plateau and I what was impossible to have done on Monday Tuesday arrived and we could do it yeah Wednesday it was still there so we were then we were hooked you got to tell us about Paula Abdul teaching you guys to dance for the MTV videos (laughs) yeah (laughs) um, well Everybody is, is at one time or another had the uh, traumatic experience of stepping on a rusty nail. You know, it's like <laughs> your parents don't step on a rusty nail. And of course, when you're wearing tennis shoes, you're going to step on a rusty nail. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this is that story in reverse. In order for Paula Abdul, who is a great choreographer, right, much better choreographer uh, than singer or amateur rock critic, I will say. Yes, uh, she she really excels in. And taking the most stubborn case, in fact, uh, I think ZZ Top might be at the top <laughs> of her list, but uh, she scratched her head and was trying to put this all together, and she said, well, I love the song, Velcro Flies, she said, I, I'm, and I've got the dance moves, and um, to save the day, the uh, local stagehand was called in, and we were asked to step out of our shoes while he took a drill and literally bolted our shoes to the floor. Wow. So we could lean in the manner in which she was <laughs> having us lean <laughs> and not fall down. You're lucky they didn't nail your feet to the... Yeah. Well, what, how is, uh, that had to be insane. 82, 83, this MTV thing is this new thing that's just encroaching on popular culture. I look back at it now. I don't know about, about you, Greg. I, I scratch my head like, why on earth did ZZ Top become one of the cornerstone bands of early MTV? The, this is not a more likely band, they less were likely band. Surrealists. That's what, what, why they did it. I mean, they were amazing. I thought the, the videos were incredible. I go, these guys are doing nothing and everything at the same time. Salvador Dali, <laughs> I think, summed it up from um, you know the histrionics of back to Dadaism, <laughs> and um, it was it was largely considered at some point in the future, the world would become surreal. Right. And MTV, the arrival of MTV, <laughs> I think kind of ushered that, that 
it pushed it a leaps ahead. So you guys just embraced that absurdity. I mean, the absurdity of ZZ Top doing videos. You you guys jumped in totally into that. Early pod. on, it was determined that we were not going to be the next Bob Dylan. That path is out. That was not on the horizon. <laughs> Howlin' Wolf meets Salvador Dali. That that makes a little more sense. <laughs> so we yeah we took it. That's great. You know, with rock and roll gearhead, obviously you're you're in somewhat nostalgic mode. You're touring your your cars, you're touring your guitars, you're recounting tales from throughout your life. What keeps you going though, Billy? You know, and w what horizons remain for ZZ Top at this point? Well, this book has brought up many different aspects and on the subject of cars and guitars. One propellant is, uh, and this is somewhat humorous, but we're still trying to get the keys back from the video girls. <laughs> <laughs> they get to drive the cars. Yeah. <laughs> Although you do have some, you have a guitar that actually has some keys built into it. Yeah. A couple. You have yeah. a Ford guitar, you have <laughs> a motel room guitar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you still want to do as a musician? Well, Keith Richards quotes Muddy Waters, and uh, he says, man, if I can just do it like Muddy Waters till the day he died, he was doing what he wanted to do. Thanks, Billy, for being with us. You're listening to Chicago Public Radio and Sound Opinions. We're going to be back with listener phone calls for the top 2005 albums and my Desert Island jukebox pick. Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott, and he's Jim Dergatis, and uh, we would like to wish everyone out there a happy new year and a great 2006. Can't you just picture all those people out there? They're putting on their cummerbund. They're getting all <laughs> dressed up for the evening out, uh, listen, wasting an hour with us first. Uh, but we care what our listeners think, and to that end, we regularly open up the hotline here on Sound Opinions, 888-859-1800. Soundopinions.com is open all the time. We want to know what your opinions are, what 
you think we got wrong, whatever else you think you can add to the musical conversation. So call us anytime about anything. But this week we wanted to, in particular, talk to some folks about their choices for album of the year, stuff that uh, we didn't include on our list a couple of weeks ago and that we might have overlooked. Let's go to our first call. Roman, you're on the phone. Welcome to the show. Thanks. What was your album of the year? We're trying to figure out if we missed any. Well, my album of the year is Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah by Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. Certainly one of the music stories of the year. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that sells it. But it was also just one of those ones that I told all my friends about, I was really excited about. I was just, I really jumped on that bandwagon pretty fast. Right, so this, this is a, a Brooklyn group, uh, broke out of Brooklyn. The album was available for much of the year only as an internet download, and yep. it was kind of spreading like wildfire on the net, became part of the story. Now, you realize, Roman, that, it, that that's not the whole story, because they also had one of the most powerful independent publicity firms in the country. I, I, didn't, I didn't know how much PR was behind it, that's for sure. Yeah, there but, you go. See, we're, we're always... The bottom line, though, is the music. It, does, does the music work for you or not? Once you hear the album, no matter how you get to it, no matter how it's marketed no, that's to you, true. does the that's music true. hold up? And I think uh, the controversy on this uh, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah record is you either love the guy's voice or you hate it. Yeah, I personally love it. It works for me. Now, are you, are you a fan of Talking Heads? I am, up? absolutely. And that was one of the things that when I was thinking about, when I, when I heard them for the first time, I was like, all my favorite bands, like The Clash, The Ramones, they have tons of imitators, yeah. millions of them. But no one's really ripped off the Talking Heads in any serious way. And so I think they're totally on it, and they do it exactly right, and they add a little bit more to it, and I really like it. So. Okay, so the, the derivativeness of it is, is part of what you like. After all, the heads aren't around to make Talking Heads music anymore, so right. why not? All right, I can see that. I can see, but, but you can understand why that would be a love-it-or-hate-it thing. I, I certainly can understand that. I gave it to someone who I thought would love it, and he was just like, David Byrne could have done this 20 years ago, you know, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I understand that sentiment, but I was like, well, he's not doing it like this now, and it sounds really good to well, me. Well, set up a track for us. What would you like to hear from that album? Ooh, I think the Yellow Country Teeth is the best one. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Roman. All right, we're taking more calls from listeners at Sound Opinions. We're getting listener feedback on their albums of the year, and we're on the line with Mary. Mary, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to be on Sound Opinions today. We're glad to have you. So what's your favorite record of the year? My favorite record out of the year comes from Toronto, Canada, and it's an artist called, I believe it's pronounced Feast, F-E-I-S-T, and the name of the album is Let It Die. Feist, yeah, it's the Feist record, of course. I'm sorry, I mispronounced it. I didn't hear hear the spelling. I haven't heard the record, but you were just talking about this. Some people say she's the indie pop answer to Nora Jones. And my question is, is that a good thing? There's a statement that means absolutely nothing to anybody besides five rock critics. What the hell does that mean? Nora Jones, piano playing, piano playing, balladeer with a nice voice, nice pleasant voice. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think she's she's better than that. Tori uh, Amos? Yeah. (laughs) What a, you know. Yeah. 
The, it's a chick with a piano, right? Yeah, a chick with a piano. That, right. uh, that's where it starts, and then uh, and, and it's kind of a, in the soft pop area. Would you say so, Mary? Oh, yes, definitely. It's very easy, easy to listen to, and I think it's just a little bit different from um, a lot of that music that's been out there this year. No, this Feist record is pretty good, and it was definitely a contention in my top 20. Is there a particular track on it, Mary, that you uh, love? Yeah, the Shabu, I think that's... All right, all right, Mary, you're talking about the track Moo Shaboom by Feist. Uh, let's hear a little of that on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. Helping the kids out of their coats the way the babies haven't been born. Oh, unpacking the bags and setting up and planting lilacs and buttercups. Oh, taking listener feedback on uh, Elm of the Year, and we're on the line with Brian. Brian, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi, thanks. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks. And we're interested, Brian, in what your favorite album of 2005 was. Uh, without a doubt, hands down, Sissy and Stevens, Illinois. Now, that album has gotten mentioned by more people yes. in more walks of life than just about any indie rock record of the last year. Make Definitely. the case, man. Why should we care about Suvian? I, th- I think that's how, how it said. I, I spoke Sufjan to him. Stevens. Yeah. I, it was an interesting interview, mm-hmm. but I will tell you this, Brian. I, I would rather chat with him than listen to him. Because <laughs> Illinois, well, Illinois left me cold. But, but make the case. Well, when, when you guys uh, talked about it in the mid-year, uh, the mid-year show, we were all kind of confused because you were like, comparing it to something along the lines of they might be giants, like some kind of like educational funny songs, where like many of us see it as much more of a uh, not just about Illinois, but about like everything. I didn't mean the shtick of they might be giants, but remember they used to have that song of the day hotline is how they first became famous. I mean, he's he's admitted in the past that it's definitely a gimmick just to like get attention, basically. But like the fact is, no matter what the subject is, he, you know, like, at least the uh, shallowest, topmost subject of the song is, he like ends up making into something so much more, like so uh, so much deeper than say an alien landing or uh, taking a trip to Decatur. Yeah, he is writing songs about weird esoteric events in Illinois state history. It's his second concept album about a state. The first was about Michigan. And you're right. I mean, he'll write a song about something relatively silly, you know, historical-wise in Illinois, but then he he tries to make it universal. Well, here's the bottom line for me, Brian, on this record. Critics are supposed to love linked groups of songs, the the dreaded concept album. That's supposed (laughs) to get us, you know, flying our kites every day. But I think individual songs are so strong but overall, I don't think I don't think the batting average held up. I don't think every song on this record really worked as a song. So, so Brian, where do you stand? I mean, is this end to end? This is a great record for you. I honestly, when I uh, after listening to it a few a few times when I first heard it, I was trying to think of a song that I would you know could say, well, it, it's all pretty great except for such and such and such and such. But with the exception of like the instrumental interludes, it all just blows me away every time. I, I just like find every single song just uh, amazing, either musically or lyrically or both. 
All right, Brian, let's, for the listeners, give them a sense of what it is about this album that works so well. Pick a track that uh, you really love from the Sufjan Stevens record. Well, the best, the centerpiece, is definitely Chicago. All right, let's hear a little bit of that on Sound Opinions. I drove to New York in a van with my friend. We slept in parking lots. I don't mind, I don't mind. I was in love with the place in my mind, in my mind. I made a lot of mistakes. Welcome to Sound Opinions. We saved the best for last year. Uh, One of the uh, most loyal uh, posters on the Sound Opinions message board, which is always a beehive of activity. Because, um, let's face it, good Dr. Bill, uh, every single one of you guys wants to be either Greg or me. Uh, Is that that the case? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine. They want to invent a new critic is what they want to do. Well, this is the whole whole purpose of this show is that everybody's a critic, and the music world has uh, several annual polls that are of great interest. There is, of course, the Grammys, which are handed out in... uh, in uh, February, and there's the uh, Village Voice Paz and Jop poll, which at this point polls some 1,000 critics across the country. And then there's the Sound Opinions <laughs> message board poll, which I would venture to say is better than either of the, the two aforementioned polls. Probably the best gauge of uh, new music in the country, aside from uh, Cot and my own list. I think that's relatively safe to say, yeah. So uh, all of the posters to the message board tabulate their top ten lists, and uh, then you put them all together, which is a thankless task, must, must be a real pain in the butt. How many hours, Dr. Bill, to, to uh, put it together? I, I couldn't even begin to count. It's, it's, it's up there. <laughs> Between the tabulating the list and the posting of it, it's... Safe to say more than 10 hours? Definitely more than 10 hours. And how many people voted this year? About 50 for singles and about a little bit over 100 for albums. Okay. Here is the world premiere of the Sound Opinions message board list. Why don't you read it back to us, the top five albums in reverse order, five to one. All right, the top five albums. Number five was uh, Andrew Bird's The Mysterious Production of of Eggs. Uh, Number four was Block Party's Silent Alarm. Block Party. Now, see, that was just lame wannabe gang of four <laughs> Brooklyn new wave of new wave. About any number of acts right now. They, yeah, well, they there were 70 bands like that this year. All right, so you, you like that record. Uh, Bob Party's in my top five. Because this is not your personal five. This is, this is, this is the, the, I mean, the I, sound I that, that, that was, the, that was the, the board consensus choice for the number four album of the year. Okay, and what was number three? Uh, number three was the new pornographer's Twin Cinema. All right, Gott and I both like that one. Number two was Wolf Parade's Apologies to the Queen Mary. Now, see, I don't get it. Did you like that record? Guitar, bass, drums, band on Sub Pop. A uh, couple of couple of singers in the band. They kind of trade off vocals. Yeah, and uh, but way over. It the didn't top. seem to be anything super special there. A couple of yeah. good songs, but not a full album's worth of great ones. All right, and we need a drum roll here. The number one. Uh, uh, the number one by Sound Opinions uh, Message Board Album of the Year. Considerable, considerable distance. Almost thirty percent over the number two album was Sufjan Stevens' Illinois album. Wow. All right. You know, they got the Chicago bias going, and 
it was just a blowout. All right. Well, that's like the that. Sound Opinions message board, top albums of the year. I'm surprised. Clap your hands and say you didn't make it in there. Uh, it was, I think, number 17 maybe. It was up there. But no Kanye West, no Common. They were both on there. Kanye was 18. I think Common was maybe 52 or so. No Black Eyed Peas. That's <laughs> <laughs> no. definitely no Black Eyed Peas. Jim's no, favorite song of the year was My Humps. Did you know that, Dr. Bill? That is, is that a great fact? single. That's a great single. Yeah. Oh. My daughter yeah, you got a fair amount of people that are going to disagree with you about that one. But. <laughs> well, what do they know? <laughs> they say they, they right. did not make the, the singles list, my humps. Well, thank you, Dr. Bill, for your labors yeah, on the uh, part of Sound Opinions message board posters and happy our listeners' edification. Absolutely. Some great stuff from uh, Sound Opinions listeners, and the hotline is always open if you want to jump into the conversation. 888-859-1800. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Each week here on Sound Opinions, either Mr. Cott or myself digs deep into the Desert Island jukebox, pops a quarter in, plays a track we could not live without that we would be happy to be stranded for all eternity with. This week, Mr. Cott, it is your turn. So many great soul singers died in 2005 that I would be remiss in not mentioning at least one of them. Uh, and they were all sort of in the same vein. Uh, Eugene Record of the Shy Lights, Luther Vandross, and uh, Tyrone Davis all were kind of smooth ballad crooners who uh, took the R&B and soul style to a new levels of sophistication and uh, all passed away in 2005. Distinctive record makers, all of them. But I think the one who was perhaps the most versatile and the most underrated was Tyrone Davis. Uh, Chicago-born singer, grew up idolizing Bobby Blue Bland, ended up having a career that was sort of under the radar for the most part, except for some early hits in the 60s and 70s, but continued to uh, be a major attraction on the R&B circuit up until the day he died earlier this year at the age of 66. And the song I'm going to play is kind of an anomaly in his career because he was mostly known for the, the smooth ballad style. Even at a young age, he was singing about adult relationships falling apart and sort of singing with a, a tinge of regret in his voice. He always had this sense of the guy who had been let down and was regretting that he wasn't good enough. Somehow he was falling short in his relationship. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't blaming the woman, wasn't pointing the finger at, at his significant other. He was the one taking the blame and regretting that somehow things didn't work out because he had somehow failed. And you could hear it in his two biggest hits, Can I Change My Mind and uh, Turn Back the Hands of Time. I wish I could turn back the hands of time and make this all better again. And I think that sets up this next track perfectly because this is the track where he finally gets it. He finally realizes what he needed to do to make these relationships work. And it's a very simple phrase, a woman needs to be loved. But Tyrone Davis had sung throughout his entire career with this sense of restraint, with this sense of, of dark regret, melancholy in his voice, a, a world weariness. And on this song, he just cuts loose. He never gave a performance ever again in his career quite like a woman needs to be loved. It's a gritty, passionate heartrending sound. The passion in this track, in the context of these other songs, where he's sort of like the mournful loser, the melancholy guy who didn't get it, and now he finally gets it, really comes through in this track, and it's a track I'll remember Tyrone Davis most for. It's A Woman Needs to Be Loved on Sound Opinions. 
Yes, a woman needs love. Now just because you bought her a brand new car. And you got her living in a mansion with a movie star. But these are not the only things that a woman is thinking of. Because deep down in her soul, all she needs is a little of your love. She needs you, she needs you. That woman, she really needs you. And that's why I say, she gotta be loved. just came by It won't take away the feeling It makes a woman want to cry Now you know that sometimes life Oh, it can get mighty rough But when you try to make the one you love happy Boy, it can get awful tough But if you would just say three little words It would surely be enough Cause she needs you She needs you That woman She really loves you And that is why I say She gotta be loved In the morning She gotta be loved In the evening, y'all She gotta be loved In the midnight hour She gotta be loved, loved, loved She gotta be Uh, that was my Desert Island jukebox pick, the very last one of 2005, Jim. I think you played that for the people who are not going out tonight to party, who are staying home and maybe getting a little romantic. I like to provide inspiration for our listeners. A woman needs to be loved by the late uh, Tyrone Davis. We're going to miss you, Tyrone. We're going to miss 2005, a year in which uh, we made the move to uh, Navy Pier and WBEZ, and we're glad to be here. I've been here a month. They haven't kicked us out yet, <laughs> but a- we haven't gotten a tote bag yet either. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in any event, until they tell us we're not welcome, we're going to be back in uh, 2006 with more of the world's only rock and roll talk show. We've got some people to thank on the way out here. Our executive producer, Mr. Tori Southside Malatia. Our managing producer and director, Todd Bachman, who buys a mean pizza. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Matt Spiegel. I don't know how he puts up with us. He's been with us for seven years. And, of course, our beloved associate producers, Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Mr. Cott, Happy New Year. I hope you're having fun tonight. Same to you, Mr. DeRigatis, and we want to thank uh, everybody out there for listening. We, we plan to bring you more joy, more Sound Opinions joy in 2006. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs>